And we are back with James D. Eugenio, one of five contributors to the new book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds, that prove there was a conspiracy. Any of these points that you've uh, brought up, uh, these indisputable uh, facts that would exonerate Lee Harvey Oswald and prove a conspiracy in a court of law, were any of these addressed by Vincent Bugliosi in either his mock trial in which Jerry Spence defended Oswald or in his book, Reclaiming History? Well, he kind of completely blew off the whole brain issue by saying that only some kind of demented person could believe such a thing. That was his way of not having a deal, you know, with the evidence, all right? About CE399, he just denied um, the evidence I'm about to tell you. Um, Bardwell Odom was supposed to be the FBI agent who, in the summer of 1964, was supposed to send the bullet, or actually go with the bullet, carry it to Dallas, and show it to the first two witnesses who saw it. And this, of course, was Daryl Tomlinson and O.P. Wright. Tomlinson was a hospital attendant. O.P. Wright was a security officer at Parkland. And in an FBI Department of Justice memorandum that's actually in the Warren Commission volumes, it actually says that such was done, and they both identified it correctly. The problem is, there is no report on this, what they call a 302. And this very much puzzled Gary Aguilar. So Gary went over to Josiah Thompson's place and said, why don't we try and find Bardwell Odom? He's the FBI agent. All right, who's supposed to have done this? So Tinks, who's a private investigator, said, I can find him on my computer. And so they did. And when they confronted Bardwell Odom with this, he said, I never showed that bullet to anybody. And I would have written a 302 report if I had. And I certainly would have remembered showing it to O.P. Wright because I knew O.P. Wright. He was a friend of mine. All right. So in other words... The FBI lied about this. There was no positive investiga- uh, identification of CE399, the so-called magic bullet. All right? Here's another problem with it. It's supposed to be in Robert Frazier. Robert Frazier was a technician at the FBI who did the, was a ballistics expert. In his notes, it says the so-called stretcher bullet arrived at FBI headquarters at 7.30. Here's the problem with that. The bullet did not get into Washington at the White House, actually. All right. And given by the Secret Service to the FBI until... 850. 
how could the bullet have been at Fraser's lab before it was actually surrendered to the FBI by the Secret Service? How could that happen? And by a good hour and 20 minutes. Were there two stretcher bullets? And they and that's what they were trying to hide? You know, that mm-hmm. seems like a logical thing to assume to me. So this is the newest evidence that we have on CE-399 not being a reliable proof of Oswald's gift. And finally, I would say that this evidence creates a very serious problem in what lawyers call chain of custody, all right? That is the way evidence is handled and transported in a reliable way so that it can be considered kosher. It can be considered genuine. CE-399 would never be admitted in court because of all these problems, all right? And if it was, it'd be blown out of the water, you know, like a, you know, a, a, a mine blowing up a submarine. So that's another thing that we think is a chokehold in this case. Let me ask you about uh, former Secret Serviceman Paul Landis, now 88 years old, claims that uh, he found uh, another bullet in the back of the uh, the presidential limo. He placed it on Kennedy's gurney in the hospital. Uh, some have speculated, if that story is true and if he's remembering correctly, uh, that maybe that bullet ended up – that same bullet was taken from Kennedy's gurney and placed on Connolly's gurney. Your thoughts? I actually um, saw Mr. Landis, stayed in the same hotel with him this last week at the Sirouette Conference uh, in Pittsburgh at Duquesne University. And I've always been, you know, honest in these interviews. I really don't know what to make about Paul Landis. I'd very much like to believe him, but... There's a lot of evidence that makes it very puzzling as to why he waited this long uh, to finally tell his story. Now, what you described is pretty accurate. That's what he's saying. And if that's what he's saying is true, then it blows up the whole Warren Commission, all right, because – his bullet is in the back seat of the car. That is not where CE-399 was discovered. It was discovered completely elsewhere on the gurney of John Connolly. Okay? Um, in, 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 in fact, there's even a question about that. Because way back there in 1967... Josiah Thompson examined the whole question about on which stretcher CE-399 was discovered. Arlen Specter and the Warren Commission said it was on Conley's. Tink Thompson had a very serious problem with this. But let's assume it was on Conley's, all right? 
then Paul Landis has just blown up the Warren Commission because there's too many bullets, all right? Um, <laughs> and this is a very serious problem. Make no, about, no doubt about it. And the surprising part, I'm sure you're aware of this, Richard, is that Landis got a story, a long story, in Vanity Fair, a mainstream mm-hmm. magazine. Yeah. He then got a supporting column by a guy named, I think, is, uh, isn't it Peter Baker? Okay. He wrote a story for the New York Times. Very highly unusual, uh, to say the least. All right. So, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt it is. Landis's story is genuine. The Warren Commission is sunk. All right. But if you ask me, I don't think we need Landis' story. You know, we've got plenty of other stuff. You know, sure, but it's very sure. interesting that a Secret Service agent would do something like this this late in the game. It is. And you mentioned, you know, Vanity Fair, the New York Times, let's call them uh, establishment media, now coming around. Now we're hearing, of course, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson um, talking openly about about this, uh, how he has it on good authority from someone in the CIA that, you know, they were involved. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. now mm-hmm. um, throwing truth bombs, if you will, about who killed his uncle. Uh, it do you get the sense here we are on the cusp of the 60th anniversary well, that the also, official story New York is magazine New York yeah. magazine just published an article a few days ago uh, in which the editor said that he now believes that the JFK case was a conspiracy you know so yeah there seems to be something happening yeah uh any any thoughts as to why why now why now? I, I think it's partly due to landis mm-hmm. all right i think that's part of the reason is that that created a kind of bulwark you know because the times and vanity fair you know are bastions of the establishment yeah so I, I believe that, that that encouraged some of these other places to actually go ahead and to reconsider the opinion. You know, Now, the latest Gallup poll that came out a few days ago, that showed that the number of people believing in a conspiracy went up to 65%, all right? And the number of people believing the Warren Commission was – something like 32%, all right, uh, of the people who believed it was a conspiracy, I think 18% thought it was the CIA. I'd like to think that Oliver Stone's film had something to do with that. Yes, you know, in your books. Revisited, you know, um, because, you know, you have to admit, for a long time until recently, all you got on TV and in newspapers and magazines was the Warren Commission was correct, and anybody who thinks it was wrong is a tinfoil hat kind of a person. Yeah, you know? and rec- reclaiming history was the final word. Case right. closed. Yeah. Yes. Bugliosi was supposed to be the authority 
on the JFK case. I guess they forgot all about my book where I took uh, Bugliosi apart. But yeah. with this new book, what we're doing is showing there are simply certain evidentiary matters that are serious that simply cannot be denied. All right? Landis's story, if it's true, is cream on the coffee, my cafe latte. But we already got the cafe latte, okay, with uh, the JFK chokeholds. Another one of the chokeholds is the um, impersonators. How many Oswalds were there, do you, do you suspect? <laughs> That's a very clever way to put it, Richard. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's, let's begin with some of the more obvious ones, and then let's go to the newer ones. Okay. The, the single most famous incident is the Sylvia Odio incident which I really don't have to tell you about or your listeners. It's the most famous case of an Oswald impersonation in the literature where in the last week of September, like I think September 25th, three visitors come to Sylvia Odio's door in Dallas and two of them appear to be Cuban exiles and one of them is called Osvaldo. And they're looking for money to carry the war against Castro. And since Sylvia's father was a member of an exile movement called Jure, that's why they were at her door. The significant thing is the next day, one of the guys calls, one of the Cuban exile guys, and says, you know, that, that Oswald guy is loco. He thinks we should have killed Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs. All right? leaving an indelible impression on Sylvia, mm -hmm. and here's the capper. On the day of the assassination, when Oswald's picture came up on TV, she swears to God it was him. She fainted. They actually had to take her to a hospital. All right? She became so weak in the knees. And her sister, Annie, backed up her story. All right, Jim, i got to take a timeout. We're approaching the top of the hour. We'll get back to the uh, Oswald impersonators. Another chokehold, the JFK assassination chokeholds that prove there was a conspiracy contributor. James DiEugenio stays with us. And uh, your calls as well. Oh, wait a minute. I've got a uh, – my apologies. I got. I jumped the gun a little bit. I've got a little bit of time here. Let's. I'm sorry. I apologize. Uh, forget right, what I just let's, said. Let's finish this up then. Yeah, and yeah, so go ahead. The Warren Commission said that this could not be Oswald because Oswald was in Mexico City. The problem mm. is, if there's one thing I believe today, is that Oswald wasn't in Mexico City. There's a whole problem with that, of course, that there might have been, there very likely was an impersonation there at both the Russian and the Cuban consulate. Now, let's go to a couple of others. There's one, Ralph Yates. Okay, November the 20th, 1963, and this is in the book, Yates was making his round as a refrigerator mechanic for the Texas Butcher Supply Company in Dallas. He picked up a hitchhiker on the R.L. Thornton Expressway that morning. He had a package with him that was wrapped in brown paper. When Yates asked him if he would prefer to place it in the back of the car, the truck rather, the passenger said no. They were curtain rods, 
and he would rather keep them in the cab. The conversation rolled around to the subject of Kennedy's upcoming visit. The man asked Ralph Yates if he thought it was possible to kill Kennedy while he was there. Yates said that, yes, it was possible. The hitchhiker then asked if Yates knew the motorcade route. Yates said he did not, but had been in the paper. The man asked if he thought it would now be changed. Yates said he didn't think so. The passenger asked to be let off at a stoplight at Elm and Houston. Yates then returned to his shop and told his colleague, Dempy Jones, about the strange conversation. Now, what happens next is that when... What happens next, Jim, sorry, this time I do have to take a break. We'll get back to that story. The man with the curtain rods... James DiEugenio. The JFK assassination chokeholds that prove there was a conspiracy contributor, James DiEugenio, stays with us. We were talking about uh, Oswald impersonators. One of them involved a, a strange character who was uh, a hitchhiker with uh, some, some curtain rods and plain brown paper wrapping. Um, weren't there some that's, others? That's the that- Ralph Yates incident. The Ralph Yates okay. incident. Well, what I was going to finish at very yeah. quickly is that he thought the guy resembled Oswald, so he volunteered this stuff to the FBI. The FBI gave him a polygraph. He passed it, but they convinced him that he was hallucinating. That guy ended up in an asylum. Wow. All right, there's also the T.F. White incident. This was shortly after the assassination. Uh, T.F. White was a garage mechanic, all right, that looked across the street and saw a guy that he thought was behaving oddly in the front seat of a car, like he was, like, ducking down or something, all right? And so his friend told him, why don't you go over and get the license? And so he went over, he got a better look at the guy and wrote down the license when Oswald's picture came on TV, he jumped up and told his wife, that's the guy who was in that car, okay, driving away from the El Chico restaurant, all right? And then they got, he got his license, ran his license, and it ran to a guy named Carl Mather, who worked at a place called Collins Radio, which had very strong ties to the CIA. And what's worse Mather knew J.D. Tippett, and in fact, Mather was at Tippett's house that afternoon with his widowed wife, all right? So that's about, what, four or five? There's also um, the incident of, of the Lincoln Mercury dealer in November, I think, 9th of 1963, where a guy uh, went in and test drove a Lincoln Mercury like 70 miles an hour, and said that he planned on coming into some money later. Okay, and this guy's name, he uh, Al Bogard remembered it, was Oswald. All right, there's also the Sterling and Homer Wood incident at the Sportstrom target range, where this guy was firing uh, at the wrong bullseye and said... Words to the effect, sorry, I thought I was shooting at Kennedy. I mean, how incriminating <laughs> do you have to get? You know, 
Come on, really. I mean, come on. You know, a guy's going to come into money, so he test drives a car. A guy's shooting at a target range, thinking it was it was Kennedy. A guy's getting away from the scene of the crime, you know, in this very suspicious car, you know, uh, by this guy. I mean, really, how obvious do you have to get, you know? Exactly, exactly. Um I, I would love to know how many there were. Um, let's see. Let's go to the phones, James, and we'll begin with uh, Steve in South Dakota, east of the Rockies. Steve, are you there? Oh, um, I need to update my screener. Uh, here we are. Scott is in Missouri. There we go. Scott, welcome. Hi, gentlemen. Um, I remember back when I lived in Vegas back in the late 80s, uh, George Knapp did a uh, a, a, a special about the JFK assassination, and he did the Zapruder film frame by frame, and the one thing he was focusing on and was talking about was where it looked like the driver of the limo actually turned over his right shoulder and shot a gun at Kennedy, which was the front headshot. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's an old chestnut, Jim. Your thoughts on that? <laughs> that's not it, – it's not true. Okay, that was a very, very bad copy of the Zapruder film. I mean very bad, all right? And there was a certain individual who packed a lot of people in the Hollywood High School and uh, showed that, all right? But it's – we have much, much, much better copies uh, there's a Pruder film today, and such such is not the case. All right. All right. Uh, thank you for that, Scott. Carson is in Missouri as well. Carson, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. First up, Michael. Michael. All right, go ahead. Yes, was, yeah. Can you hear me? Well, you have to speak up, Carson. You're uh, you're kind of low. Okay. That better? That, okay, yes. Okay, so first of all, my first question was, how how long do you think that um, that the Kennedy assassination plot was being planned before they carried it out? And also, does he think that Lyndon B. Johnson may have had a hand in it? Two good questions. Okay, okay thank That's you, That's for Carson. the first question. I believe that the plot was being worked out either in what you would call the summer of 1963 or a little bit earlier than that, all right? And I believe that there was more than one Patsy lined up. Uh, And I'm sure most of your listeners know about the so-called Chicago plot which happened in the first week of November, and the attempted Tampa plot, which was about a few days before Kennedy was actually killed. In the Chicago plot, the fall guy was going to be Arthur Vallee. In the Tampa plot, it was going to be Gilberto Lopez. All right, those two did not work out. Therefore, they perfected it for the Dallas incident as I'm, I'm, I'm not a big believer 
and Lyndon Johnson being part of the conspiracy. I've never seen any very solid proof of that. Now, on the other hand, I do believe that he probably knew something was in the wind, okay? And he knew that uh, this meant that he would finally fulfill his ambition, you know, which would be to be president of the United States, because he sure did a lot of funny things, you know, after the fact, all right? Um, like appointing Alan Dulles, you know, to the Warren Commission. Very, very, very weird behavior, you know, and then intimidating Earl Warren to take the job by telling him if you don't take the job, there's going to be a nuclear holocaust. I mean, please, you know. So, yes, there, there's a lot of suspicion about Johnson. I've just never seen any very good evidence of him being actually a part of the conspiracy. A lot of it seems to rest on the supposed um testimony of his his mistress uh, Madeline Duncan Brown. Are you, are you going to talk about Madeline Brown? Yeah. Okay. Did you know Madeline Brown claimed for years on end that her son was fathered by Lyndon Johnson and when that didn't work did you know she filed a lawsuit against somebody else? Are we I supposed to believe she doesn't even know who her son's father is? Hmm. You know? I, I never found Madeline Brown very credible. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's say hi to Ted in Nebraska on the wild card line. Ted, good morning. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Yeah, thanks for fielding the call here. You know, I think Eisenhower pointed out the perps in his uh, departing speech. And I haven't heard any mention of uh, my friend uh, David Talbot's book, Brothers. I'd like to hear your impression of uh, these three books as far as veracity. Uh, brothers, um, Edith Baker's Lee and Me, and uh, Dr. Mary's Monkey. If you could, uh, I'll take that off the air and uh, appreciate okay. your thoughts. All right, Ted, thank you. Okay. Brothers, um, Lee and Me, and Dr. Let, Mary's let, Monkey. Let, let, let me take those in ascending order. I don't put much stock in Judith Mary Baker for a lot of different reasons. We could be here endlessly all night. Okay, but that's the way I feel about it. Dr. Mary's monkey is a very interesting hypothesis, all right, which we can, you know, you can either say you agree with most of the evidence in there or you think it's questionable. But Ed Haslam, I thought, did a very nice job of trying to explain um, the whole mystery of of, of, of the, the death of that female doctor in in New Orleans. Okay, who I can't recall her name right now. Do you remember it, Richard? I don't. I read the book and I've talked to Ed, but I don't remember uh, her name. It was a horrible, grisly death. Yes, yes. Very mysterious as to what happened to that poor woman. Now, Brothers, I think, is a step above. It's. I think that's an, a very interesting book, which I reviewed at my website, kennedysandking.com. And I think it's... Uh, he was really one of the first, Talbot was really one of the first, to show how Robert Kennedy never believed the official story about the murder of his brother and why he didn't believe it and how he investigated it at the beginning and then was likely going to wait until he became president to reopen the case, and except we all know what happened. 
to Bobby Kennedy right, uh, when he was about to, to win that office. Um, there's a very interesting story in that book about William Walton, who was a cultural ambassador to the Soviet Union, how Bobby Kennedy and Jackie delayed his trip until about a week after the assassination, then called him over to Bobby's home at Hickory Hill. Oh, Mary Sherman was the name of the uh, doctor yes. who just came to me. That's All right. right. Um, and so they called him in to the dining room table, sat him down, and said, I want you to deliver this letter to Georgie Bolshikov. He's a KGB agent, and tell him I want to get it to the highest levels of the Russian government. And the letter said, although we know that everybody's blaming this Oswald guy, we think this is a wide domestic conspiracy. All right. I will drop out of the government, run for office, and then run for the presidency after that. Because I do not think the Russians will be able to keep up detente with Lyndon Johnson because he's too beholden to big business. But we will go ahead and continue it once I become president. All right. Now, can you imagine writing that a week after the assassination? No. You know, <laughs> knowing what really had happened and planning for the future already. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in, Bobby... that's in Brothers. Okay. Thank you for the call, Ted. Bobby Jr. Um, running, and um, could be a could be a spoiler. Could be could shock some people. I mean, we're still eleven months away, twelve months away. Rising in the polls, um, loathed by the mainstream media now. He used to be kind of a darling, and still he, until he started talking about big pharma and things like that, uh, he's not being afforded Secret Service protection. What's going on there? Do you think there, somebody's worried? Yeah, don't you think – do you think someone's worried he might become president and, and like his father, try to poke around and find out who killed his well, uncle? Well, the thing is there have been exceptions to what they call the 120-day rule, okay? Obama was an exception, all right? For example, he got Secret Service protection. So did Trump, okay, prior to that 120-day rule, the four-month rule. All right. So why, if there's anybody who deserves an exception, it's Bobby Kennedy Jr., don't you think? Well, there's already been an attempt on his life. Yeah. Yeah. What happened to his father? What happened to his uncle? Well, and then there was an attempt on his life. uh, Right. Right. Not too far from the Ambassador Hotel. Yeah. Yeah. A mile and a half. Right. right, Exactly. Correct. All right. And And the media did a very bad job covering that story, you know. Uh, can you imagine if Bobby Kennedy had a fair press where he'd be in the polls right now? Right now, it looks like he's going to be out the guy who was the number one third-party vote-getter for the last 30 years, which was Ross Perot. Right mm-hmm. now, he's polling above Ross Perot. You know, and, and, and no, I don't think he's going to hurt Biden. I think if Trump runs, Bobby will probably hurt Trump more. I mean, can you imagine having somebody in that campaign who's willing to tell the truth about the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and John F. Kennedy? Wow. 
it's it's remarkable how his campaign mirrors his late father in running against an incumbent. Well, when he was running as a Democrat, he was running against the incumbent and uh, like his father, just dropping all of these truth bombs and really stirring things up. Um, so how do we get a copy of the JFK assassination chokeholds that prove okay, there was a that conspiracy? Book, the JFK assassination chokeholds just went on sale, I believe, November the 14th. And I, I'm pretty sure you can get it in all three versions. You can get it in a ebook. You can get it as a paperback, and you can get it as a hardcover. And I think it's at most of the major uh, online stores. Okay, of course, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble would be another one, and several other online stores. And the Kindle version is only nine ninety nine. Okay, so I, I, I believe me, it's well worth spending nine ninety nine on this. All right. So if you want to, and if you're interested, go ahead and check out some of the uh, bigger, uh, the bigger online salespeople. The Amazon has it right here. I'm looking at it right now. And go ahead, and uh, if you like it, drop a review. All right, that that always helps. I I guarantee you, if you're honestly interested in the JFK case, you'll find this book a worthy contribution to your library. And don't forget about my website, kennedysandking.com. Jim, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good night. Good night. For George Norrie, George Napoli, Alliance, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Michael Cozio, Donna Walker, Dan Calanti, Chris Boros, Tim Banal, and Sean Latasor, I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, so long for now.